So, the other day, I got a little flack for, uh, I, I keep getting a little flack for calling the show Solving Problems and Starting New Ones. Now, there are a few stories and reasons behind the name, which we'll get into at some point, but the most important point is the name provides a layer of protection. Let's just say there are sensitive, let's call them people, out there who may not enjoy the show. The name is actually one of three layers of protection. The name is the first one. The second one is starting the show usually with a straightforward remark or something with a dash of ignorance. And then finally, a little heavy metal music to kick the show into gear. By then, anyone listening will know you are not on some beautiful cruise ship sailing in the middle of an ocean surrounded by serene beauty of the sky. Nope, this is a pirate ship, folks. And if you're still listening, welcome aboard. This is Solving Problems and Starting New Ones, the show where a man with issues takes issues with the issues, and where we try to be an incubator of good ideas, and together, we'll try and make them great. And you'll get all this from a guy on the street perspective. Today, we're talking about how to get the X-Men in the MCU, and we're going to answer the question of, did we lose Vietnam? And if you don't like comic book movies and you don't like talking about war, well, shit, I'll see you in episode six. But if you do like what you hear, hit the subscribe button, hit the like button, give a review, send some hate mail. And if you see me on the street, give me a buck. Do something already, all right? Good news. If you're on our Facebook page, you might have seen that we beat CNN's podcast on iTunes. And by CNN, I mean the Spanish version of CNN. Listen. I really don't care. Anytime an organization gets beat by a disorganization, I'm pretty pumped. Even if it was just for one day. Alright, right now we're going to focus on the most troubling problem in geekdom. How do we get the X-Men in the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Well, let's start with a brief background to get everyone kind of up to speed. And I'm not going to go overly in-depth, just kind of the highlights. So, in the comic book world, the X-Men and the Avengers are owned by Marvel and Disney. But the movie rights to the X-Men, they, they're owned by Fox. Which is why you never had a, an opportunity between Wolverine and Captain America teaming up or Iron Man. It was contractually impossible. Now, within the last year, Fox has sold all its movie rights to Disney. So now you can have the X-Men and the Avengers characters in the same movie. The problem is, the Marvel Cinematic Universe has been pretty well established and quite successful, but has never once mentioned the existence of mutants or the X-Men, for obvious reasons. So how do we cram the X-Men into the MCU? Some people suggested a multiverse theory. The Fox version of the X-Men would simply pop up in the MCU. But one of the key components of what makes the X-Men tick is that they are hated and feared. X-Men just showing up ready to save the world doesn't exactly make people afraid. What would make people afraid is knowing that, that mutants are the next step in evolution. Or another way to look at it is they are superior to humans, but you can really only do that through a slow buildup. Also, using the multiverse as a way to get the X-Men in the same universe can be very confusing to your average moviegoer. Some people suggest that they just start showing up like what happened with Spider-Man, with no real explanation. But if you do that, then you're taking away the rich history of the X-Men. Wolverine fighting with uh, Captain America, for example, in World War II. So the best solution for getting the X-Men in the MCU would be this. In the MCU, around, say, the 1980s, 
Something happens that is so bad that Charles Xavier has no choice but to wipe the memories of mutants from the minds of everyone on the planet, which could be done through the use of, uh, say, like Cerebro. You could show people around the world hypnotically burning books about mutants, erasing files that would exist at the time, and even most of the mutants themselves wouldn't have any knowledge and possibly, and possibly they would have their powers uh, suppressed. Now, when I say something happens, I leave that something up to you to think about. My idea would be to have a character like Namor create a tsunami that destroys a city. That, I believe, would tick people off enough to hate and possibly want to kill mutants. In which case, Xavier would simply say, nope, and then there goes everyone's memory. And you could get someone like the Ancient One from the Doctor Strange movie you get that person involved to help help Xavier wipe everyone's memory. That way you sort of incorporate the existence of unknown interactions between the X-Men characters and MCU characters. Now, would Xavier actually do something like this? Is this really part of his character? Well, yeah. He's been established for decades that he's kind of an elitist dick. And let's be honest, he's kind of a Nazi if you think about it. He has a shaved head, hangs with a lot of white people in hoods and masks, and he doesn't like Magneto. Maybe it's because he's Jewish. I don't know. I'm just saying it's another problem for another episode. So yeah, he'd totally do that. However, you do have some problems that uh, pop up with this. What do you do about a character like Rogue or Cyclops who can't control their powers? For certain characters, I'd say Xavier would try to quietly recruit and take care of certain mutants in his school for the gifted. Most other mutants, I think, would blend in fine, but what do you do about a character like Nightcrawler, who looks like a blue elf? I would say the best thing for the MCU to do, and to differentiate from Fox's X-Men, is to limit the uh, population of mutants. I'll say around 198. This would also limit the number of mutants that have standout traits. That way, if you saw a newspaper with Nightcrawler's face on it, you would assume it's fake. Like looking at uh, Batboy from the Weekly World News. you think it's just makeup or some sort of mask. Also, I think the memory wipe is a good idea or a good way to go because it stirs up a lot of drama which makes for good X-Men stories. If someone tampered with your memory without your permission, you'd probably be pretty pissed off. On top of that, there's a little social psychology going on as well. The X-Men characters represent outsiders, minority groups, generally people who don't fit into society very easy. So to have someone, for lack of a better term, put everyone back in the closet, that's going to be a huge problem for a lot of X-Men characters and hopefully create some great character and storytelling moments. Now, obviously, at some point, everyone needs to regain their memory. So again, something would need to happen in the present. You can try and come up with your own idea. My thinking would be to have Wolverine wake up from stasis in an abandoned Weapon Plus facility where he gained his adamantium skeleton. Now, I'm assuming Xavier wouldn't be able to wipe the memories of an unconscious person. So you could very well have a movie where Wolverine is coming from a really, really dark place, trying to find the S.H.I.E.L.D. organization or anyone that recognizes him. Eventually, he would find Xavier and maybe not so politely ask that uh, he restores everyone's memories. That's pretty much it. But I'll throw in some uh, bonus problems that we can solve as well. How do we get Deadpool in the MCU? That, you can use the multiverse angle. you got to figure hanging out with Cable, who's a time traveler, gives the franchise an easier explanation to show up in another universe. Plus, you could take, uh, you could have Deadpool 3 all about, all about his universe collapsing and show him failing miserably to try and stop it. Another problem? How do you get the Fantastic Four in the MCU? 
I would uh, end Black Panther 2 with the spaceship crashing down on Wakanda. Fantastic Four come out, establish briefly that Reed Richards and the Black Panther had a previous friendship, mention how they've been gone for and unheard of for about 15 years, then ended with Reed Richards saying Galactus is coming. Everyone in the audience will need to change their pants. And last thing, how do you explain Magneto's age? He would have to be 90 in order to have his background in World War II. My thinking has always been, if mutants are the next step in human evolution, then wouldn't they live longer than a human? Wouldn't they age slower? I would assume the life expectancy would really would probably double. So a 90-year-old Magneto would be like a 45-year-old human. And that's all I got for this one. If you're listening to us on uh, YouTube, leave a comment, subscribe, check out the podcast for full episodes. You know, just kind of do something. Okay, before we get to our next segment, a thought occurred to me about this show. This show is all about solving problems. But what if we run out of topics, you know? Like, I catch myself thinking, what would our 100th episode sound like? This is Solving Problems and Starting New Ones, and welcome to our 100th episode. All right, let's hop into our big topic of the day, nosebleeds. Do you hold your nose up or down? The answer is, tilt your head slightly forward. Well, that's all I got this week. Hope you all join us next week. Uh, It's kind of hoping I'd come up with something a little better, but such is life. Next week's episode will be all about red. The color red. Well, I'm sure whatever it is, it'll be awesome. Anywho, let's move on to Vietnam. Today, we're going to answer the question of, did we lose Vietnam? We're going to touch upon the history of Vietnam War as briefly as I can and try to answer that question as best as I can. Generally, when you ask the average Joe or Jill what they know about Vietnam, they'll typically say we lost or we had no right to be there. So we're going to address that issue as well. Now, before I get into any of this, I usually go through about 10 different resources before putting these types of uh, segments together. For this, I had to use about 20 for what will probably end up being about an eight-minute segment. Why, you ask? Because there's the truth, and then there's the opinions that people call the truth, and then you also have general complications. Also, there's been, uh, there's been declassified information in 2005 and 2011, which changes the narrative. Even a simple question like, when did the Vietnam War begin, can lead you into confusion. U.S. troop involvement was 64 to 73. But U.S. involvement in general began in the early 1950s under Harry Truman. With that being said, most people would say the war started in November, at uh, November 1st, 1955. The U.S. Congress, on the other hand, recognizes 61 to 75 as the Vietnam War era. You can see what I'm uh, dealing with here. So we're going to begin with the Geneva Accords that signify the end of the first Indochina War in uh, July of 54. Geneva Accords, among other things, briefly divided North Vietnam, which was under communist rule, and South Vietnam, which favored a, favored a more westernized civilization. After two years, there would be a vote and unification in Vietnam. But the elections never happened. The president of uh, South Vietnam and America as well knew there were far more people living under communist control in North Vietnam. Also, recently declassified information told how North Vietnamese authorities killed at least 
10,000 people for simply opposing communism. So you kind of knew how the North was going to vote. So what was the point of the election? Dwight D. Eisenhower believed, like Harry Truman, in the domino theory or the Red Scare. If Vietnam fell to communism, then Cambodia, Laos, Thailand, India, and so forth would be next. The potential of losing the entire Eastern Hemisphere to communism is what drove the president to aid South Vietnam with military advisors and support. And you gotta think of how things were at the time. This was less than 10 years after World War II. With Hitler in control of a large part of the world, you can imagine just wanting to try and avoid that scenario again. The U.S. would spend the next five years training South Vietnamese people how to defend themselves against northern forces. In 1961, new President JFK would take over on what type of involvement America would have in Vietnam, with southern Vietnamese military suffering tremendous losses to the north. He would agree to send more advisors and machinery, but no ground troops. In 63, due to continued losses in battle, and also his treatment towards Buddhist protesters in South Vietnam, the president was killed in a coup by his own military. JFK knew about the coup beforehand and said, meh. Then three weeks later, he was assassinated. Lyndon Johnson would take over in 63, and in August of 64, you had the Gulf of Tonkin incident. This is a heavily controversial area of the story of Vietnam, as a lot of people believed it was a staged incident or a false flag operation. In 2005, declassified information was released, so I'll break it down as best I can. In July of 64, the CIA was working with the South Vietnamese uh, Navy to carry out covert intelligence gathering and also commando attacks against the North. At the same time, the U.S. Navy was preparing to send the USS Maddox to survey the Gulf of Tonkin and gather intelligence, which was very close to where the South Vietnamese commandos were operating out of. The U.S. Navy did not know about the covert operations nearby. On August 2nd, communication technicians intercepted reports of North Vietnamese vessels getting underway with a possible attack on the USS Maddox. At the time, the ship was currently in international waters on patrol. Hoping to avoid confrontation, the commander of the Maddox ordered the vessel out of their current location and into a different one, hoping it would be safe. Well, hours later, North Vietnamese torpedo boats attacked. They were pushed back by heavy fire from the Maddox, along with four F-8 Crusaders, which ended up taking out one of the North's torpedo boats. Now, you have to assume the North Vietnam, North Vietnamese rather, made connections to the covert operations going on in the USS Maddox in the same area, hence the attacks, even though they really had nothing to do with each other. That's part one of the controversy. What happened on August 4th is where a lot of confusion sets in. After the August 2nd battle in the Gulf of Tonkin, uh, Lyndon Johnson ordered a second destroyer, USS Turner Joy, to join the Maddox. Both were 100 miles from the coast of North Vietnam. On August 4th, there was a massive thunderstorm with waves 6 feet high. That morning, the U.S. Uh, intercepted another potential attack on the, on the destroyers. Unfortunately for both vessels, the weather left some of their radar systems inoperative. USS Maddox at about 11 o'clock at night reported they were tracking unidentified and approaching vessels. The radar devices that were working showed that they were about to be attacked from multiple directions, northeast, some from the southwest, and then from the east only to disappear and then repeat directions on the opposite side. Over the next three hours, both destroyers were maneuvering at high speeds trying their best to evade the, the attackers. Both destroyers reported automatic weapons, more than 20 torpedo attacks, sightings of torpedo wakes, enemy cockpit lights, 
in numerous radar contacts. The Maddox and Turner Joy combined unleash 249 5-inch shells, 123 3-inch shells, and about 5 depth charges. While that was going on, Commander Stockdale arrived overhead and onto the scene, and for about 90 minutes he was flying low altitude and ran parallel with the ship's course. He said, quote, I had the best seat in the house to watch the event, and our destroyers were just shooting at phantom targets. There were no PT boats. There was nothing there but black water and American firepower. I just want to take a second here. I didn't hear a recording of how he said American firepower, but I know he said it with confidence, even as he was witnessing one of the wackiest things he's ever saw. I miss those days. You remember confidence, folks? Anyone? Anyway. A few hours later, the White House gets the call that they are not confident about being under attack. Freak weather attacks on the radar, overeager uh, sonar men, may have accounted for the reports. This led to mass confusion in the White House as they received another message, changing their story about five hours later after the quote-unquote attacks. After interviewing witnesses aboard the Maddox and Turner Joy, the commanders believed they were actually under attack and had positive visuals on enemy lights and sightings of uh, torpedoes. Other intelligence also supported the attacks as another intercepted message from North Vietnamese patrol spoke about the recent attacks. But you did have a witness flying behind the destroyers that didn't see anything. Despite the confusion, Lyndon Johnson was on national TV saying he was going to retaliate less than 24 hours after the uh, possible attacks. A couple of days later, the Tonkin Resolution passed in Congress, which eventually led to America putting boots on the ground in 1965. That's controversy number two. The Gulf of Tonkin was basically pushed as a Pearl Harbor moment for America. Congress backed the Gulf, Gulf of Tonkin Resolution nearly unanimous, with only two senators voting against. This allowed Johnson to take all the necessary measures to repel any armed attacks and to prevent any further aggression. So this brings to the question of, should we have been there? Now, you have to know that Congress was unaware of the covert operations that possibly led to the first attacks. And they also didn't know about the possibility of there being no attacks the second time. So, did we have a right to be there? Well, we're going to have to do a little critical thinking here. We'll look at it two ways. One, it is not okay to lie to Congress about not letting them know exactly what happened on those nights. Which is why people today will say the war was unconstitutional. A second way to look at it, America was already fighting in the Cold War. This was just another fight within a larger war. Congress in previous years had strongly believed that Vietnam was where America needed to make its stand against communism. Between Stalin and Mao, the two major figures of the Communist Party, they had killed at minimum 65 million people. Congress felt they had to put a stop to their escalation, especially while allies in Europe were still recovering from World War II. And if you read the talking resolution that Congress signed, it says that they give the president full authority to take any and all measures in Vietnam. To me, that sounds like overkill for Congress for what they believe was brief battles on the sea. I think they knew what they were signing into. So did the CIA stage this event? Did we have the right to stop communism and the terror that comes along with it? Did President Johnson have the moral and constitutional right to tell Congress the truth? Do the rules even matter as Congress was dead set on going to war one way or another? Beats the shit out of me. I'll leave those answers up to you. Now we're going to skip over the entire war itself and talk about the end. And finally answer the question of, did we lose the war? 
1973, with President Nixon in charge, a severe U.S. bombing campaign in North Vietnam would lead to the Paris Peace Accords being signed by the North, the South, and the U.S. This agreement would end the war and pull the U.S. troops out. It was called VB Day in the White House, Victory in Vietnam Day. The U.S. had victory. With the Paris Peace Accords, there were promises made to help South Vietnam should North Vietnam attack. The deal Nixon made with the leader in the South was replacement for any military hardware they lost. Then, as mentioned in Episode 1, Watergate happened. Nixon would resign and be replaced by President Ford, and three months later, the elections for congressional seats would end up being overwhelmingly anti-war. They would soon defund any support in South Vietnam. Leaders in North Vietnam admittedly were testing Ford and the new Congress by attacking village after village in the South. Congress did not respond. In early 1975, the South Vietnamese president resigned and accused the U.S. of betrayal, and he had this to say on a TV and radio address. At the time of the peace agreement, the United States agreed to replace equipment on a one-by-one basis, but the United States did not keep its word. Is an American word reliable these days? The United States did not keep its promise to help us fighting for freedom, and it was in the same fight that, United, that the United States lost 50,000 of its young men. End quote. On April 10th, President Ford begged members of Congress to support v- South Vietnam. Members of Congress walked out. Here's a quick clip of that for you. I didn't kill my wife! That's clearly the wrong Ford. Anyway, 20 days later, Saigon, the capital of South Vietnam, would fall, and it would be renamed Ho Chi Minh City, thus ending the war, which led to many southern Vietnamese people dying from hunger, disease, and execution. Or if you were lucky, you went to a re-education camp. From victory to defeat. America's goal or purpose was to keep communism out of southern Vietnam. So did we lose the Vietnam War? Well, yeah. But when people say we... Who do we really mean? That's right, folks. Smelly hippies. Or Congress. But all is not lost, folks. Today, in Ho Chi Minh City, there is a secret American organization. That's right, folks. I'm talking about McDonald's. And through meat sweats and degenerative heart failure, America may be able to turn this into a victory yet. Well, that's all I have for you today, folks. Stick around for the quick clip after we wrap. Like, comment, share, send some ideas, or hate the show. Either way, spread the word. I'm already working on episode 6, so we will return when it's ready and not a complete waste of your time. This was Solving Problems. And start new ones. Bye. This is the Michael Medved Show. And whenever people tell lies about our servicemen in Vietnam or offer smears about what they did over there, I think of a letter that I've cherished ever since I discovered it. It's a letter written in the tradition of a fighting man going away to war and writing to his fiancée. In this case, his fiancée's name is Angela, uh, in case something happened to him.
And the um, veteran's name is Joseph E. Sintoni. He's a New Yorker. And he wrote, Dear Angela, this is by far the most difficult letter I shall ever write. What makes it so difficult is that you'll be reading it in the unhappy event of my death. You've already learned of my death. I hope the news was broken to you gently. God, Angie, I didn't want to die. I had so much to live for. You were my main reason for living. You're a jewel, a treasure. Please don't hate the war because it has taken me. I'm glad and proud that America has found me equal to the task of defending it. Vietnam isn't a far-off country in a remote corner of the world. It is Sagamore, Brooklyn, Honolulu, or any other part of the world where there are Americans. Vietnam is a test of the American spirit. I hope I have helped in a little way to pass the test. The press, the television screen, the magazines are filled with the images of young men burning their draft cards to demonstrate their courage. Their rejection is of the ancient law that a male fights to protect his own people and his own land. Does it take courage to flaunt the authorities and burn a draft card? Ask the men at Dacto, Kantian, or Hill 875. They'll tell you how much courage it takes. Most people never think of their freedom. They never think much about breathing either or blood circulating, except when these functions are checked by a doctor. Freedom like breathing and circulating blood is part of our being. Why must people take their freedom for granted? Why can't they support the men who are trying to so trying to protect their lifeblood freedom. We must do the job that God set down for us. It's up to every American to fight for the freedom we hold so dear. We must instruct the young in the ways of these great United States. We mustn't let them take these freedoms for granted. I want you to go on to live a full, rich, productive life, Angie. I want you to share your love with someone. You may meet another man and bring up a family. Please bring up your children to be proud Americans. Don't worry about me, honey. God must have a special place for soldiers. I've died, as I've always hoped, protecting what I do hold so dear to my heart. We will meet again in the future. We will. I'll be waiting for you that day. I'll be watching over you, Angie, and if it's possible to help you in some way, I will. Feel some relief with the knowledge that you filled my short life with more happiness than most men know in a lifetime. The inevitable? Well, the last one. I love you with all my heart. And all my love for you will survive into eternity. You're Joey. And Joseph E. Sintoni is one of the 58,000 names on the wall in Washington. He died less than a year after he wrote these words, serving his country in Vietnam. 